It is good to be back here with y'all. I'm thankful for uh, Jesse and Justin opening up the Word and sharing with you over the last couple of weeks and trust you benefited uh, from their teaching in the Word and your walk is greatly encouraged and moved forward because of their investment in you uh, from their investment and their explanation and encouragement from the Word. I I want us to uh, take a step back from Colossians this morning. We're going to do something a little bit different So let me just kind of explain the flow of things, and and then we'll walk through this. Uh, Today is going to be an opportunity for us to pray uh, as individuals, to pray as families, uh, and and for us to pray corporately. And so we're going to go through some different places uh, in the Word together, and then we're going to break in the middle and have an opportunity to pray together. Jesse and the band will come back up and we'll sing another song and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in another teaching and then we'll pray again together and then we'll conclude our service in worship. And you might ask, why, why are we doing this? Why are we stepping away from uh, Colossians? It, you know, am I worried about talking about women in submission? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> but we're going to do that next week anyway. Um, but... I think it's helpful for us occasionally to interrupt our normal rhythm of things and to come together as a people. Now, routinely, uh, prior to this, we were given to times of corporate engagement and corporate prayer. But we've not taken a Sunday morning to do that in the middle of this, although certainly we have prayed, certainly we have studied together. But I want us to look at God's word together today, and I want us to corporately come together and, and set this time aside to endeavor to pray together. Now, if you're not here with us, we'd encourage you to do this at home uh, as you watch it live with us or as you watch it later. I know that you would, be, uh, would benefit just from this time with the Lord, and I know that we will benefit here and now in, in, in the reading of God's word and the time spent in prayer together. As I was thinking about this and prepping for this, a couple of passages came to me. Uh, One of them is, uh, and this this won't be on the screen, but it's out of Judges 16. Judges is such a terrifying book. Repeatedly we read the refrain, in those days there was no king and everybody did what was right in his or her own heart. And that's generally left or, or followed by an account of what that looks like when people follow their own hearts and we see horrible atrocities. We see people whose hearts are wayward and hardened towards the Lord and then we see the Lord return and he rescues and he redeems his people and he does it over and over again. Now arguably the most famous or oft-remembered judge for many of us in that is Samson. And we're not remembering him because he's such a good guy and because he does such amazing things. We're remembering him because his tale is so incredible and it's it's one of the longer accounts in the book of Judges. But for me the saddest words to come out of that, Samson in his overwhelming strength that comes from the Lord gives himself to anything that he sets his heart upon. Women and hunger and, and destruction. And so he finds himself in love with a wayward woman named Delilah. And over and over again, she comes to him and she asks him, listen, what do I have to do to make you just like any other man? And so he lies to her and he lies to her and he lies to her and he finally confesses to her. He tells her the true source of his strength and so she takes his hair and she has his hair cut off. 
And the next morning when the Philistines rush in, we read these words out of Judges 16, 20. It says, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Now listen to what it said. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson was presuming upon the Lord, thinking that the strength that God had given to him was his. And it was because he was special and because he was unique and because he was different. And he could do whatever he wanted to do and it didn't matter. He completely neglected the Lord. I'm fearful that in this time, many of us have given our thoughts and our energy into trying to find a way just to move past. Whether that's a political hope, whether that's a false hope we believe in, whether it's just kind of marking down the days, whether it's giving ourselves to to mass ingestion of news, just we want to watch everything, we want to read everything, we want to talk to everybody, we want to beat this situation into submission, and somehow we'll make it. That we would be like those who say, I'm really independent. Lord, I'm going to come back to you at some point. That we would stand not realizing that we have moved far beyond the Lord. In Exodus 34, Moses goes back to the mountain once more. And he's meeting with the Lord. And he meets with him for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's putting together the second uh, course of tablets that would, that would contain the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there with the Lord, something happens to him. The glory of the Lord shining on Moses' face makes this reflective glory. So when Moses comes down from the mountain, in Exodus 34, 29 and 30, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin on his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Listen to the response of the people. It says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They recognized on the basis of Moses' time spent with God that something was decidedly different about him, and it was just different enough from their ordinary context that they couldn't stand to be around him. And if you read continually further in Exodus 34, you'll read that Moses ended up putting a veil over his face to help people not be worried about the reflective glory of the Lord that still is upon his face. They were fearful of the Lord, and they were so fearful of the Lord that even seeing the reflective glory was too much for them. I think we need to spend some time in front of the Lord today. And sort of three aspects or three characteristics of God that I want us to hone in on today and to think about and to pray for for ourselves, for our community, and globally. And it's simply this, that our God is an everlasting God, that our God is an all-powerful God, and that our God is a loving God. Let's think about the, the fact that our God is an everlasting God. When you think about this, we recognize that in the midst of these things, it feels like yesterday that we were all on spring break, right? This is the longest spring break ever. This is the longest spring break ever, and it quit being fun a long, long time ago. But in the midst of all these things, it feels like time is just absolutely slipping through our fingers, and we're greedily trying to hold on to it with more and more, but the the harder 
uh, we try and grip, and, and the more desperately we try and hold on to it, the faster this time seems to go. So I was thinking, like, what is, what is the cure-all? What is the help in the midst of these things? It's not being a better steward of my time, although certainly we would benefit from that. It's not this idea that, that I just need apps and reminders on my phone to help me use my time better. It's a reminder that I need to go to the one who holds all time and recognize that he himself is transcendent of all time. In the Bible, when it opens up, it tells us this about God in Genesis uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so we recognize that before all things God existed. This is so incredibly important to us because we recognize that time is a construct given to us by God who himself exists outside of time, prior to time, and will exist after time comes to an end. Amen? It says in the beginning. And in this time, verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So before God spoke a word of creation, He existed. This is a reminder to us that although our current existence and our current reality is time-bound, and we are punished for breaking rules of time, if you show up too late to a lunch, you'll find that your friends have left If you show up too late to work, you'll find your job no longer exists. But all in these things that we were created for an eternal existence. So the life we experience in the here and now. It's passing, it's a vapor. It's fleeting, it'll be gone like this. Although it feels like we've been on this insufferably long spring break, we find that our lives are such an incredibly short period of time. Book ended with Genesis, and in the book of Revelation, we read these words in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. God says of himself, discloses, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Look at how he describes himself. He says, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Lord Almighty. God discloses himself when he gives this revelation of who he is. He doesn't speak of himself primarily as the God who is, as if the God who is existing right now. But he speaks of himself as the God who always was, the God who existed prior to all things. He says, I am the God you're currently experiencing, and behold, I am the God who will be. Man, this gives us great encouragement. That in the midst of the difficulties of life or the relative ease and indifference that you see yourself going through right now, you recognize that this God is unchangeable and that he is everlasting. He is journeying with us through the difficulties of life. So whether we find ourselves relatively unimpacted by this time or you have buried friends, you have buried relatives, you have suffered the loss of a job, you have suffered the loss of friends, and you have suffered the loss of stature. God is everlasting. He abides with us in the midst of these things. I mean, I'm convinced it's our meditation on the timeless nature of God that causes us to view time for what it is. Time in the here and now is an opportunity to be engaged for our God. Time isn't something to move on. Time isn't primarily something to be frustrated with. Our four-year-old tells me all the time when he gets to be older, when he gets to be a grown-up, he's going to be taller than I am. And I just tell him, not yet. Not yet. 
And I got bad news for him. I just don't think it's going to happen. He got my wife small jeans. Short jeans. There you go. Those two. Time is a vehicle and it's an instrument God gives so that we might number our days, so that we would know that our days are passing, fleeting, and numbered. Will we focus on God's everlasting character and give ourselves to being invested in this time here and now? Or we simply tick off the days of our dissatisfaction. We simply mark through the weeks ill spent. We simply mark through the moments and lost opportunities of not getting to celebrate birthdays the way we want, not getting to celebrate anniversaries the way we want, not getting to bid our families their home going the way we want. Will we waste this time? God allows us to experience the ravages of time because it makes us need him. And he reveals himself as everlasting, the one who is not bound by time, so that we would see the distinction between our experienced reality and his transcendent reality. Our God is everlasting. Recognize our God is not just everlasting, our God is all-powerful. And when we recognize our God's omnipotence, his all-powerful nature... We should be able to give up the pressing desire to wield our own power and this position of weakness calls us to embrace our weakness. Recognize that the Bible over and again gives us an indication that God has everything in hand. Everything in hand. There's nothing that is happening in this current reality, in this current experience that exists outside the hand and the power and the provision of our God. But yet somehow we feel pressed, we feel determined that we have to exercise control. And what happens in the midst of this? What happens in the midst of our attempts to exercise control on something that you and I are broken and powerless to exercise control over? It frustrates the heck out of us. And more than that, it frustrates the snot out of everybody you come into contact with that can see your weakness, that can see your inability. And it testifies to a world that that lives outside the reality of this all-powerful God. It testifies to them that there is no difference between our experience and our journey than their own. Christian, God is calling us back to this steady recognition that he is all-powerful and that he has all of these things well in hand. God is not sitting in heaven thinking, man, I really hope they get out there and, 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 and do this enough. I really hope they get out there and campaign enough or the wrong person will be elected. I really hope they get out there and educate people enough or or, or people will be misinformed in all of heaven's plans and all of eternity which hangs in the balance and rests upon their abilities will be thwarted. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5 says he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. How amazing is this? Over the last couple of weeks, my mother-in-law has texted my wife almost every day to say, there's this comet coming. It's amazing. You've got to get out and see it. If you don't, you're never going to get to see it again in however many years. And we would sit on the couch and say, do we really want to go outside? 
Do we really want to go outside? And the God who named the stars, who calls them by name. I've seen the realities of the universe play out over and over and over again. And the celestial bodies move in their course and he purposes their actions. This is a sign and this is the limit of his power. We recognize that what the psalmist tells us here is that his understanding is beyond measure. It is beyond our ability to understand. He's all powerful, but we're not. Psalm chapter 33 in verses 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. How many of us by our ability to speak and articulate are able to affect much change? And you say, well, when I step into my place of work, when I tell my employees to do something, they do it. When I go into a restaurant and I order food, they bring out the right thing. Friend, if you're feeling overconfident, let me submit to you a toddler. The great undoing of all the all-powerful. The great unbecoming and bewildering effect upon a parent who finds themselves in a puddle laying on the ground crying, Please, no more! Just eat. Just go to potty in the potty. And any other number of things that toddlers torment us with as they wield iron fists of authority over adults who cry themselves to sleep too. We recognize our God is all-powerful. Nehemiah writing to the people of Israel said in Chapter 9 and verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. What are we dependent on for our preservation? What is your last week? What, is, what does yesterday look like for you in, 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 in this understanding of what is preserving what is holding you fast? Now, in reality, you come into texts like this and you say, of course, of course, of course, I would say that the Lord is holding me fast. Of course, I would say that in line with, with Hebrews in chapter 1, that Jesus is upholding the universe by the power of his word. And of course, I believe this. But the reality of the way we live our lives says that we believe almost anything but this. We work and we toil and we expend all of our energy and all of our emotional strength trying to affect permanent change that is ultimately just undone. Now this isn't calling us to just kicking back on the recliners of life and saying, I guess I just don't have to do anything. But it is understanding that although God gives you energy, that he gives you passions, we don't use those hoping to change those things that are by virtue of his character and virtue of his providence, God. God calls us to be faithful. But he doesn't call us to do more than we are able. The Lord is the maker of the heavens and the earth. The Lord is the one who has created all these things. And we must trust in the one who is all-powerful. Amen.
should be a freeing thing for us. That our meditation upon God's surpassing strength allows us to trust in our vulnerable state. We need not fear in the midst of our weakness. It allows us to be vulnerable. We don't wake up in the morning having to put on a, a happy face or a glad face of which the masks cover. Anyway, it, we, we don't wake up in the midst of these things and having to present to the world, I'm not afraid of anything. We can present to the world, I am broken, I am terrified, I am fearful. But the one who's everlasting, the one who is all-powerful, holds me fast. And in that we can take solace. I mean, that's a rally cry we could call lost people to. This is something truthful that they can hope in and hold on to. Not that we're calling them to be sufficient. Not that we're saying, listen, if you just bide your time, these things will pass. For all those in the midst of the Civil War, they thought that the world was coming to an end. For all those in World War I, they thought the world was coming to an end, we might tell them. For all those in World War II, they thought the world was coming to an end, we might say... But, but still we made it through. No, we don't want to call them this to some past experience where people just bided their time until things got better. We want to call them to the Lord. The one who is unfailing. The one who is everlasting. The one who is all-powerful. Because his everlasting nature and his all-powerful might Call them to himself, broken and weak. And in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our inability, we find the love of God. I love, absolutely love, what the Bible says in the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi records a group of people's wayward nature, their break from the Lord, their faithlessness. And he just kind of goes down through, this is what you're doing in your marriages, this is what you're doing with your finances, this is what you're doing in, your temp in the temple. This is all the various ways that you're breaking the heart of God and you are faithless to him. And you say, Matt, why do you like that so much? That seems to be a really negative message. But all of that is preceded by what the Lord says in Malachi 1 and 2. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Do you get the sense of that? Do you get the delight in that? That God says to a group of wayward people who are completely pursuing their own agendas, who are absolutely failing at all the various things that he calls them to, and to this group of wayward sojourners, he preempts their failure with a word of love, beckoning them to come. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, and they respond to him, how have you loved us? And then he runs through all of their failures. God loves them in the midst of their failures, not in spite. Today we recognize that our Lord loves us. And that God loves the wayward, that his heart breaks for the one who would walk away from him. That his heart breaks for the one who would reject him. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 tells us simply that God is love. And we recognize that his justice, mercy, and patience all flow from this love. John 3.16 figures for us, it paints for us, it displays for us the course of this love. It says, for God so loved, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. The God who recognizes wayward sinners. The God who sees us today 
wrangling and fussing and griping and advocating that everybody else in the world is wrong except for us. Everybody who doesn't see the world as shades of gray, everybody who doesn't see the world in black and white, everybody who doesn't see the world in technicolor, everybody else other than me, we would say, is wrong or misguided. And if they'd only abide by the things that I say, the things that I say, think, the things that I articulate so cleverly, they'd be one to my salvation. That God sees me in my waywardness. He sees me in my enlarged sense of self-importance. In his everlasting nature and his patience. In his all-powerful might which is able to overcome my ego. In his loving disposition beckons me to come. Come and be loved. Come and be restored. Come and find shelter. Shelter is not found in the passing of time quickly. Shelter is not found in electing a better person. Shelter is not found in a vaccine. Shelter is only found in him. And he calls us to come. To experience his embrace. He calls us weak need, bloody elbows, broken noses, wounded pride, belligerent kicking and screaming. He says, Come. Our God is loving. His love is not just for us and those who think like us and talk like us. His love is for the most wretched of all sinners. This is why Paul says his love is for people like me. Adulterers in heart, breathing out murderous threats. And his love is for you. Like us in this next moment or two to spend some time praying. And praying that the realities of God's characteristics, of His everlasting nature, His all powerful might, and His loving disposition would be realities in our hearts. And then as we come back, we'll focus on a reflection on those realities and what it makes us as a people. Let me open us up in prayer and then I'll give us time. If you want to pray as a family, if you want to turn at home and pray, or if you want to pray out loud in this space by yourself, we'll have an opportunity to do that. Let me open us in a word of prayer. God, I'm thankful that your word gives us a sense of just how truly great and awesome you are. God, I pray that you would cause us to hunger for you. God, help us not to be satisfied in ourselves. Help us to see our brokenness. Help us to see our waywardness. 
God, I pray that for us as a community, a group of churches, that our churches would resemble you, and that we would trust in your everlasting nature, that we would rest in your omnipotence, that we would freely extend your loving kindness. God, I pray globally that we would trust in you. Not some smaller version of you that we are tempted to make. But the beautiful picture of you that you give us in your word. And all the complexities and mystery. Father, I pray that you would guide us as a people in these next few moments as we come to you and we pray and our hearts are breaking for us, our community, for our leaders, for Christians globally, for the lost globally. God, would you guide our hearts and would you guide our words as we pray to you. We pick up this understanding that our God is everlasting, all-powerful, and loving, but what, what about us? Where, where do we go in the midst of these things? What should be our response? No. I'm going to submit to you that they could be myriad, and in fact, they should be. As you reflect on these things throughout the week, as you pray to God through the Holy Spirit, he leads you in paths of righteousness, and he convicts you and says, listen, this is what he said, but this is where I want your heart to be. This is what I'm doing in you. This is what I'm calling you to focus on and calling you to long for. Recognize that these are merely two of the things. Simply, though, I want us to be hopeful and I want us to be engaged. Hope is so incredibly necessary. But if we find ourselves hoping in the wrong things, if we find ourselves drawing our hope from the wrong thing, and we're disappointed, it can lead to dissatisfaction, it can lead to brokenness, it can lead to doubting. Oh, but if we hope in the right thing, if we hope in the true thing, find ourselves never allowing the possibility of disappointment to creep in. Peter writing to a group of churches that found themselves dislocated, living in the midst as culturally as exiles, much like you and I are today. He writes to them and he says these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 6, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, the hope you and I have today isn't a hope that is passing or fleeting. It's not a hope that is sustained by our stick to by our good thoughts, by our ingenuity. It is, the th- it is the hope which God has given to us, and it's the hope that has produced life anew in Christ. He says, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we recognize that our ability to be hopeful in the midst of any setback, in the midst of any difficulty, doesn't come from us. And so this says to us, those of us that are optimistic, whew, this was exhausting. And this says to us, those of us who are relative pessimists in the midst of these things, oh man, 
You mean I've got to be hopeful? Yes, but, but it's not calling you out of being a pessimist. It's just calling you into the reality of what God has done for you through the sacrifice of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection. He caused us to be born again. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we've been raised to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. When God speaks of the locus of our hope, when he, when he talks about and he says, this is what your hope is founded upon, recognize that he set something far outside of our experience and far outside of this earthly realm. But he says, this is what it is. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Everything we have in life breaks. Everything we have in life, we've been tempted to believe, can be fixed. But it can't. Much we have in our bodies, much we have in our life can be fixed. It can be helped, but all things the ravages of time destroy except the hope that we have in him. It's imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. What does he say next? Verse 5, he says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so when we reflect on the fact that our God is coming again, that one day Christ will peel back the heavens, that he will call out with a loud shout, and that he will beckon us to return home, that he will declare himself ruler and victor over all this world, in that time when that thing happens, our salvation will be finally and fully revealed. He says, because of this, because this is what is waiting for you in the midst of all these things, because this is what is on the other side of the travails of this life. He says, because of all of these things in this you rejoice and I'm laid waste this is because of the hope that's coming for you because of the inheritance that's kept in heaven for you we're able to rejoice right here right now he says though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials. And I don't think it does anybody any good for us to complete comparative grief analysis and say, well, you know, economically it's really bad, but if you look in the 20s, they didn't have some of these institutions there, so really it's not so bad. Well, you know, it, it, it's really not so bad when you compare it to uh, the, the Spanish flu. Well, you know, it's really not so bad. Yeah, but, but those, those people aren't us, right? We're the ones currently experiencing this. No one is aided by playing comparative grief analysis. What we're aided by according to this is focusing on a reality that is unaffected. No matter how bad the circumstance. The hope of the men and women in the midst of the Spanish flu was an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The hope of anybody... In the midst of France, in the midst of Germany, in the midst of North Africa, in the World War I or World War II was not peace. It was not a vanquishing of a foe. The true and unassailable hope was a heavenly reality kept safe through whatever heinous reality humanity brings upon herself. That's where our hope is. It's the only hope worth communicating to a lost world. 
We don't want to communicate an economic hopeless, and if you just invest wisely, we don't want to communicate a moral hope. If you just make better decisions, we want to communicate an eternal hope. Amen? And it's a hope that is sufficient for us. And it's a hope that calls us to the reality and this understanding that this is not our home. And we're not waiting for things to get better. The reason so many of us feel this sense of disquietness, this unrest in our souls, is because this place isn't our home. And I'm talking about Greenville, Texas and the transient nature of some of the people that live here because some of y'all have been here before this was a town. Like, you don't even know what the word transient means. Talking about terra firma, I'm talking about earth, I'm talking about the human experience, this place, this earth, this spinning ball of dirt. It's not our home. Our home is with the Lord. And our allegiance to the Lord and our citizenship was won by his son, Jesus. And it resides with him there. Until he comes back and he remakes this heaven and this earth and he rules over this place. That's our home. So when we see statistics on abortion, when we see statistics on disease and euthanasia, when we see society moving in a reckless and breakneck speed towards oblivion, we look at it and we mourn. Because they know that they were made to know the creator and sustainer of the universe. The one who holds our hearts and our realities in his hand. Our hope is with him and our hope for them rests in him as well. So it's necessary that we are engaged. To be unengaged is to look at this in the middle of this and, and just say, it's okay, I'm hopeful for me and my family. We can hunker down and make it through this. Y'all, we, we're going to be okay. Or even if you want to expand it and say, me, my friends, and my, my family group, we're going to be okay. We're going we're gonna to stick together. We're going to give each other toilet paper when it becomes the next black market issue again. I don't love anybody that much. I'm just kidding. We, 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 anyway, that's another story. But if that's what our hope is, or our hope is just for the close group of people around us, Our Christian hope calls for us to be engaged. It calls for us to look around and see lost people and just say, I'm I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay that, that daily as they wake up, that their hope could be snatched from them, never to be replaced. Because everything they hope on is fleeting. Because everything they hope on is failing. And everything they see before them is illusory and is passing so incredibly fast. I want the hope that sustains me to be the hope that saves them. We're never going to get there if we're not engaged. And we're never going to get there if we're only concerned with our self-preservation. The Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and we rejoice. Because I recognize how wicked and wayward I was. 
because I recognize my propensity to follow my own heart, and I recognize that even now my old self wants to well up and be in charge. But if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. It says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, listen to this, y'all, a ministry of reconciliation. What do we do in the midst of being hopeful? Uh, In the midst of this global pandemic, we pursue reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, everybody say, entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that in your life, honestly? I'm not trying to preach to encourage you. I just want you to be critical and evaluate your life just for a moment. Just Just to the level of discomfort. Are you engaged? Or are you biding your time? Take a great many of us are engaged in something. I'm engaged in making it through. I'm engaged in surviving Monday. Some of us, you're engaged for the next 20 minutes or so until you can take off that mask and go, <gasps> And you never wanted to preach before until you recognize that when I take the stage, my mask comes off. And now you're thinking God may be calling you to full-time vocational ministry. I saw some of you talking to Jesse about playing the tambourine. I've already told him no tambourine. It's harder than you'd think. We need to be engaged in things that matter. You already know where I stand. We've been over this again and again on issues of social media and the things we're advancing. Listen, listen. Lots of people die every day. And they're dying without hope. They're dying without a savior. And the plan and provision of God, from my perspective, is crazy and insane as it is. The plan and provision of God for your lost neighbor is you. The plan and provision for the lost African is you. The plan and provision to extend salvation, to call people to the Lord are men and women like you and me. And you get to decide whether you want to be engaged or not. And what path you want to pursue. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, for the churches of our community and the churches globally, is that we would move off muddling through. Man, I'm tired of muddling through. Tired of seeing us say, oh, when, when, when this next thing gets there, then we'll be able to open up to this next level of freedom. 
We've had unfettered access to lost people this entire time. Online, over the phone, in person, socially distanced, up close and personal, whatever way you want to do it. Americans laud their freedom. If you want to use your freedom for something that matters, reach a lost person for eternity. You want to use your freedom for something that's passing and fleeting? I don't think we can do that in honor of the Lord. We've got to be a church and a people who are primarily concerned, first and foremost concerned, the first order of importance in our hearts in seeking to glorify the Lord is this. Engage the lost. We want to be those who follow Jesus in seeking to save the lost. Living the gospel, sharing the gospel. Living the gospel, sharing the gospel. Wash, rinse, repeat. You were created for a time and a purpose. You're ambassadors for a good king. Not a political party, not medical advice. I am aware of who in this church went to medical school, who became a doctor, those who became nurses, nurse practitioners. I know those people. And they are not many. But we've raised up a church of lay-level medical dispensers. i got to be honest. i got something going on in my left leg. I'm not going to see you this week. And I would encourage those around you not to see them either. Seek out a professional for help. Let us be faithful to the task he's called us to, not the one that we've taken up for ourselves. Let us be broken for the lost. Let me open us up in a word of prayer as we once again have an opportunity to pray together corporately before Jesse and the band leads us once again in worship. Father, we come to you and we pray God, I pray that you would help us to be hopeful. God, help us not to be overcome with fear or pessimism. But help us to have a genuine hope that is born of you, from you, sustained by you. Just as in our inheritance is kept safe for us by you in heaven. God, I pray you would call us to be engaged. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Help us to know those situations and circumstances that you are superintending for the here and now. God, in your providence, you have caused us to be born in this time, to live in this community, knowing that there are men and women and children who need to hear the gospel. God, help us not to be so busy putting forth some other mechanism, working for some other cause that we miss the lost around us. We're not called to make heaven on earth. We are called to invite men and women to know your son Jesus so that they might escape the wrath to come. God, help us to lift up high the name of Jesus in how we live, Help us to lift up high the name of Jesus in how we speak. 
So God, in these next moments, as we have opportunities as families, as singles, as friends around this room and listening online or at home, God, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, stir in us a desire to be hopeful? Would you assure us of our hope? And would you stir in us a desire to be engaged? Would you lead us in prayer?